Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Friday, March 10th, White River National Forest reading approves of the access Colorado proposed 19-home-Burlamont Estates community above Today, Eagle River Valley. Today, we will be reading the following main articles. In his final decision, White River Forest National Supervisor Scott Fitzwilliams said federal laws require home adequate access for reasonable use above Eagle of River private Valley. land, despite by Jason Long-term impacts to wildlife habitat and recreation, the park ranger, the road, the mental the health worker, Berlin and the endless States. hurdles they face to help people by Jason on Denver's streets. By Jennifer Brown, White River National Forest Supervisor Scott Colorado Fitzwilliams will soon has start approved final plans for a road across federal land to, to access a proposed options. development of luxury by homes Tatiana above Flowers. the Eagle River Valley. And following up with After miscellaneous articles study under the National Environmental Policy Act, a lawsuit filed last year by the developers of the proposed Berlaymont Estates to force a Forest Service decision, and hundreds of protest letters from residents, politicians, and environmental groups, Fitzwilliam's final road decision is the best balance of a safer alignment, he wrote in his final record of decision issued Friday. I truly believe this meets the spirit and intent of the National Environmental Policy Act to reasonably address the purpose and need and minimize environmental and social impacts to the greatest extent possible. He wrote of his decision to adjust his previously selected route to what he called a modified alternative. Investors Peter Lukes and Jana Sobotova first proposed Berlaymont Estates 15 years ago. The Florida real estate developers plan to build 19 luxury homes on 35-acre parcels on a 680-acre island of mountaintop aspens, surrounded by forest service land above Edwards. Homes on 35-acre parcels can sidestep local planning regulations and they sought access across federal land under the 1980 Alaska National Interest and Lands Conservation Act. That legislation, known as ANILCA, requires federal land managers to provide landowners with adequate access for reasonable use of private property surrounded by public land. The words adequate and reasonable in ANILCA are contentious. The developers say a year-round paved road with a limited number of switchbacks is adequate for homeowners to reach their homes. Opponents of the plan, which include most elected leaders in the region, multiple wildlife and environmental groups, and 4,200 residents who signed a petition, say an existing seasonal dirt road is enough for the owners to enjoy reasonable use of the property. Refusing to build an access road was not an option due to the rules of ANILCA, Fitzwilliam said in his decision. The decision notes more than 1,000 comments on the proposed road, of which all but a few are in strong opposition of the project. He shares those concerns. I fully understand that this project will have adverse impacts on resources that are important to the public and to the Forest Service, 
Fitzwilliams wrote. In particular, long-term impacts to wildlife habitat and recreation will occur if this access route and residential development are constructed. A statement from a representative of the two developers said they were taking their time to review the decision, due to the nature and substance of the modified alignment. Fitzwilliams said the Forest Service tried several times to get Lukes and Sobotova to exchange their land for other less critical Forest Service parcels, or sell it to the agency, but they declined. ANILCA regulations do not give the Forest Service the right to tell a landowner what use may be made of non-federal land, Fitzwilliams wrote, detailing his rationale for determining the plan for 19 homes was reasonable. Environmental groups are unhappy with the decision. The Wilderness Workshop, which has battled Berlaymont for more than a decade, said the decision to pave public lands will facilitate sprawl in the backcountry. There is no formal objection period for a final record of decision, but there can be, and often are, legal challenges to the final stage of the NEPA process. Environmental groups early Friday declined to hint at the possibility of litigation. Throughout this process, it has become abundantly clear how unreasonable Burleymont States really is. Wilderness Workshop attorney Peter Hart said in a written statement that notes, thousands of people opposed the project. Whether it's due to the impact on declining wildlife populations, because it will put more people and expensive homes in the path of wildfire, or because the development is so much more grandiose than what typifies inholdings, this approval sets a terrible precedent, Hart said. Today's decision fails to protect public lands and wildlife, while ignoring the public and defying logical consideration of the record. The new road winds through habitat used by elk and deer in the winter. Fitzwilliams said his selected route of 2.4 miles of paved road on Forest Service land minimizes disturbance to habitat, protects a wildlife corridor used by deer and elk, and strikes a better balance between addressing winter wildlife effects and safety, while also reducing visual impacts. Fitzwilliams issued a final environmental review approving a 2.6-mile access road to the inholding in 2020. The developers appealed the approval, arguing the choice would hinder emergency service to the planned homes and asking Fitzwilliams to re reconsider their more direct and less expensive-to-build route. A Forest Service arbiter heard the appeal in January 2021 and sent the final decision back to Fitzwilliams for adjustment. In September 2022, the developer sued Fitzwilliams, asking a federal judge to force a final record of decision on the access road. Lukes and Sobotova argued in a lawsuit filed in Colorado's U.S. District Court that political pressure was slowing the Forest Service process, saying that special interest groups waged a campaign of misinformation that has swayed political leaders to lean on the federal agency. 
Governor Jared Polis, Colorado U.S. Senators Michael Bennett and John Hickenlooper, and U.S. Representative Joe Neguse in 2021 asked Forest Service officials to delay a final decision to re-engage with the local community and address local concerns. Bill Heischer, a former wildlife manager with what is now Colorado Parks and Wildlife, said in a statement that the road and new subdivision will destroy important habitat and encourage deeper penetration into a fragile ecosystem that barely sustains the native species today. The Forest Service is creating a sacrifice zone in Edwards for development and recreation, Heischer wrote. To most of us, that is unreasonable and unacceptable. The park ranger, the mental health worker, and the endless hurdles they face to help people on Denver streets. A program pairing mental health clinicians with the rangers who field complaints about camping in parks aims to get people into therapy if they're willing. By Jennifer Brown The woman was hidden under a blanket along a chain-link fence when park ranger Caronia Stefano called out, Hey there, can you please poke out and talk to us? The red-haired woman in her mid-forties sat up, startled, wondering whether she was about to get kicked out of her outdoor bed on a chilly March morning. Downtown Denver's skyline rose in the east, and downhill from her resting spot near Sheridan Station, a man aggressively tossed an electric scooter from a bridge. It crashed onto the sidewalk below, and he shouted obscenities at the park ranger. Stefano used to patrol for Denver Parks and Recreation on her own. Now she has Kayla Bauer, a clinician from Denver's Community Mental Health Center, standing next to her, gently asking the woman sleeping outside if she wants water, bus tickets, or a therapy appointment. The woman, who does not want to give her name, agrees at first to do a preliminary mental health intake right then. But she quickly changes her mind, saying she can't handle explaining one more time all that she has been through. Within a few minutes of conversation, tears are streaming down the woman's cheeks. We're going to go talk about my whole life, and then I'm going to be upset again, and then they're not going to take me in, she told the son, crying. It's not like I'll get to go lay in bed and watch a movie after. I don't know if I want to open up again. I'm tired of it. The day before, someone kicked her as they passed by, she said. I'm everyone's mess, she said, everywhere I go. Stefano and Bauer give her bus tickets and water, and as they pull away in a small, curb-hopping Parks and Rec electric car, they talk about how they will return to talk to the woman again. Today was only step one. They hope that soon, maybe if they come when the sun is going down or on a particularly cold day, or when the woman is ready, she will accept their offers to help. I can come back tonight and check on her, Stefano says. She very much has been through something traumatic, and she wants to tell everyone about it, Bauer says. And that's okay. We're here for that. There's space for that. 
it's also, what can we do at this point if she's not willing at this time to move forward? Based on the woman's rapid speech and disorganized thoughts, Bauer suspects she uses methamphetamines. But lying on the ground under a blanket on public property is not a crime. I want some peace and quiet. Why can't you just know that? The partnership between Wellpower, the mental health center, and Denver Parks and Rec began in November. Similar to other co-responder programs that partner clinicians with police officers and RTD security officers, the purpose is to deal with the root of people's struggles and offer longer-term help, instead of just asking them to move along. The program is funded by Medicaid insurance and a Caring for Denver grant, and includes two well-powered clinicians who each work three days a week with a park ranger. Denver's park rangers, who patrol not only parks throughout the city but the trails along Cherry Creek and the South Platte River, receive about 40 to 50 calls per week on the city's 311 hotline from residents complaining or concerned about people who are sleeping outside. One morning this week, DiStefano and Bauer set out from Parks and Rec headquarters to check on three reports of people who had set up structures, which is illegal in city parks. The morning starts out rough. The first woman they say hello to on the Cherry Creek Path, near the Champa Street Bridge, shouts at them. Leave me alone, she yells, scrambling to her feet next to a shopping cart filled with blankets and food. She's not doing anything illegal. She has no structure. I'll make sure to report that you are bothering people in the park. I want some peace and quiet. Why can't you just know that? What the... expletive. Bauer makes an attempt to calm her down. I just wanted to check in, she says, smiling. I saw you yesterday. But when the yelling escalates, she backs away and waves goodbye. Later, along Lakewood Gulch Trail on the west side of the city, DiStefano and Bauer find a young couple camped out beneath a tree. They have no tent, so they placed the few blankets they had at the base of the tree, then built a shelter using fallen branches. They're so well hidden it's hard to tell they're there, but they answer when DiStefano says, Hey, park ranger, anybody here? A Denver resident reported to 311 that there was a structure and human feces in the gulch, which is surrounded by a neighborhood of small homes and apartment buildings. Angel Carranza comes out and begins removing the tree branches after DiStefano tells him it's against law to build shelters in public parks. His girlfriend, Kiki, stays at the base of the tree as the roof above her goes away piece by piece. Bauer gives them phone numbers and hours for the public library so they can charge their phones and use the internet, and the gathering place, which can help them get food and job training. Bauer also warns them that most overnight shelters separate men and women and tells them how to get motel vouchers. We need more public restrooms, Kiki tells the son. There's nowhere to go. I've been to places where they let other people use the restroom, but when we come in, they're like, no. 
because normally we have our backpacks with us and everything. The couple moved to the park a few days ago after the area where they were camping, around West Colfax Avenue and Sheridan Boulevard, got too rough. The area is notorious for drug use. Kiki's parents are dead, she says. Pretty sadly, my mom lives on the street, Carranza says. The couple met while living outside. They treat us like being homeless is illegal, Kiki says. It's so debilitating to them that they just don't want help. Di Stefano started her career in state parks at Chatfield and Cherry Creek, then switched to Denver Parks and Rec about two years ago. Her days are mostly a series of uncomfortable situations, but they're easier to handle with a mental health worker standing by. She and other park rangers received crisis intervention training, watching as facilitators acted out various scenarios involving people who are suicidal in a park or in some kind of mental health crisis. But that training doesn't compare to having a clinician present, Di Stefano said. Having somebody who knows what they're talking about and what they're doing, it's been wonderful and really helpful to connect people with resources, she said. We just don't have a deep education like our co-responders do. The future plan is to get a vehicle that would allow park rangers and clinicians to safely transport someone to a crisis center. For now, they call STAR, a mobile crisis program run by Wellpower, the Denver Police Department, the County Health Department, and Denver Health. Before DiStefano had a co-responder, she waited with a woman who was delusional until a STAR van arrived and took her to the hospital. The woman was new to an all-male encampment on the Platte River Trail and was in serious crisis, calling for her mother and sobbing and scribbling words on a sidewalk. Di Stefano felt at a loss to help the woman and could only sit with her and wait for her ride. One tough part of the job is deciding whether to immediately remove a person's tent. Now, when Di Stefano confiscates a tent, she has a mental health worker to help get the person sleeping outside somewhere safe, hopefully a shelter or a motel. Though it's illegal to camp in parks, rangers don't always force people to take down their shelter immediately. Sometimes, if no one is inside, they post a 48-hour warning. But if there are needles or jugs of urine or other sanitation issues, rangers take faster action. That's something that we need to immediately remove from the park, because there are playgrounds and children playing around, Di Stefano said. Di Stefano typically deals with one or two campers at a time, not large encampments that would require help from various city departments. And her jurisdiction is parks and trails, not sidewalks. Before becoming a co-responder, Bauer was a therapist in substance abuse centers and at Wellpower's 14 residential facilities. It's harder, she said, working with people who are living outside because she can't always persuade them to accept help, even when the consequences are dire. 
When we got that cold front and they don't seek some kind of shelter or they have a tent, but they can't have it so park rangers have to take it, there's a higher likelihood that they will die in the night, she said. I'm kind of sitting with that a little bit. Bauer mentally struggled with the job at first, even though she knew she wanted to work outdoors and not in an office. I started to feel like there was only so much I can do, and I got kind of frustrated with it because there are a lot of people out here that don't want any kind of resources for their mental health, she said. It's so debilitating to them that they just don't want help. Rangers, police, remove woman from Sloan's Lake Bridge. Wellpower now has about 40 mental health therapists working as co-responders throughout the city. The hope is to expand the park ranger program. With only two clinicians, park rangers have co-responders only six days of the week. Clinicians can do an initial mental health screen on the street then schedule an in-person appointment and provide the bus ticket to get there. Appointments, however, are running about a month out. Still, people can get immediate help with detox or at a walk-in crisis center. The successes come one at a time. This winter, DiStefano helped move an older woman with dementia who for years had lived under a bridge at Sloan's Lake. After checking on her many times and letting her stay, park rangers and Denver police eventually determined her life was in danger and took her to a mental health facility on what's called an M1 hold, or an involuntary commitment. DiStefano sorted through the woman's belongings that were left behind, looking for IDs or books or paperwork that the woman might need. She found mostly blankets ripped up by rats. People from the neighborhood were stopping by and they were asking, Is she okay? We've known her for so long we bring her food down here under this bridge, DiStefano said. We got her into a long-term mental health program. Everybody was so happy to hear that. Colorado will soon start licensing dental therapists in effort to help expand oral health care options. A 2022 bill provided the means for licensing dental therapists, a mid-level provider who could narrow the oral health equity gap. But training for them doesn't exist in Colorado. By Tatiana Flowers Five Colorado counties don't have a single dental provider, meaning people often drive long distances for routine care. One in five Coloradans report having fair or poor oral health. Fifty-three of Colorado's 64 counties have dental health professional shortages. And adults in rural areas have almost twice the prevalence of tooth loss when compared with their urban counterparts. Only 28% of Colorado dentists served any Medicaid-enrolled patients in 2018, and in low-income schools, 44% of all kindergartners had at least one cavity, according to data collected by Healthier Colorado, 
a nonprofit that works to influence public policy to improve health care for people across the state. A law passed last year was intended to help close those oral health care gaps by authorizing dental therapists to work in the state. But it may be years before enough of these mid level clinicians are working in Colorado to make a difference. On May 1st, Colorado will begin issuing licenses to people who have completed dental therapy degrees, or have practiced in the military, or are licensed in the 13 other states where their work is legal. The degree is not offered by any Colorado colleges, nor does the state currently offer a licensing exam. For now, people interested in the profession must train elsewhere. Only Alaska, Minnesota, and Washington have education programs. Healthier Colorado, which lobbied last year for the passage of Senate Bill 219, hopes to work with partner organizations, such as the American Academy of Pediatrics, Delta Dental, and the Colorado Community Health Network to create a statewide dental therapy education program. Clinicians could expand capacity, but where will they train? Dental therapists, similar to physician assistants, can offer more care than a dental hygienist, but less care than a dentist. Therapists can fill cavities, clean teeth, place temporary crowns, and perform extractions, for example. Once a local education program is created, perhaps at the community college level, Coloradans will begin to see many more dental therapists who are supervised by dentists, working in dental practices, schools, mobile clinics, nursing homes, and other community settings, said Kyle Pacola, Vice President of Communications and Advocacy for Healthier Colorado. Research in Massachusetts, one of the states considering authorizing the practice, suggests adding a dental therapist to a clinic could expand capacity by 1,920 appointments per year. It's proven to be really safe, and that it's proven to have really phenomenal health outcomes for people is important, Pacola said. Eventually, this is going to be a really big deal. At least one critic has said it's unclear if there's enough state funding to help educate and train dental therapists, especially while Colorado already underinvests in higher education, including for dentists and dental hygienists. Colleen Lampron, president of AFL Enterprises, a public health contracting company in Denver, is a former executive director of the National Network for Oral Health Access. She supports bringing dental therapists to Colorado, but called Senate Bill 219 flawed. We already don't have enough resources to train our dentists and dental hygienists, and now you want to add a completely new profession with a new curriculum and new graduation requirements, she said. Where are the people going to come from to teach these courses and how will we pay for it? The University of Colorado School of Dental Medicine, for example, 
suspended admissions to its dental hygiene program indefinitely because of cost concerns, she said. The last class of CU dental hygiene students graduated in May 2009. There are four accredited dental hygiene programs offered in Colorado at the community colleges of Northwestern Colorado, Pueblo, and Denver, and at Concord Career College. Pacola said Senate Bill 219 merely created the scope of practice and authority to license dental practices, and that healthier Colorado leaders plan to work with state budget writers and community colleges to find funding for a new dental therapy education program. Dental therapy education programs in other states have been set up through local partnerships and private and public funding, Pacola said. This is an effort to build a pipeline of dental therapists to address oral health. The Colorado Consumer Health Initiative conducted a 2022 survey to assess Coloradans' oral health needs and experiences. Despite a desire for good dental health, half of the 422 respondents reported having oral pain or feeling self-conscious about their mouth's appearance. 47% of respondents who needed immediate care said they had to wait for more than one month to secure an appointment, and 73% said they did not access care because it was too expensive. The mouth is part of the body, and we've learned if you have gum disease, that can make it harder to control diabetes, and it has an effect, perhaps, on heart disease, said Dr. Terry Batliner a Colorado dentist who has worked alongside dental therapists in other states, including in some of the most remote parts of the country. When people are trying to find a job, keep a job, and work in the broader American society, it's important to look good, he said. Missing teeth, he said, are really a disadvantage for folks. Dental therapists needed especially in mountain, rural communities. Dental health problems also are a leading cause of school absenteeism for Colorado kids. Batliner, a member of the Cherokee Nation of Oklahoma, was Associate Director of Center for Native Oral Health Research at the Colorado School of Public Health and worked with the W.K. Kellogg Foundation to help expand access to dental care in U.S. communities. He said dental therapists are especially needed in mountain communities and rural areas of Colorado, where there are few dentists. Dental therapists also can help reduce the cost of oral care. They get paid between what a dentist and a dental hygienist gets paid, he said. So they'll be providing, oftentimes, the same stuff that a dentist would provide, but they won't get paid as much, and so that can reduce the cost that is passed on to the people. Employing local providers who understand the unique stresses and issues that affect their own communities helps them talk effectively with their patients about how to prevent disease, because they can better relate to them, he said. And that has happened in Alaska, said Batliner, one of the several people who testified at the Capitol in support of Senate Bill 219 last year. 
Most of the people who are dental therapists in Alaska are Native Alaskans. As of October 2021, Alaska had licensed 36 dental therapists. Minnesota, where there are three training programs, had 133, according to the American Dental Therapy Association. Dr. Carol Neferatos also testified in support of the bill. She oversees the dental program at the Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, which provides care to about 6,000 people per year. Most of the organization's clients are people who are homeless, and none are turned away when they walk in for an appointment. I support any thoughtful improvement in access to care for any underserved populations, Neferato said. Vulnerable populations tend to need the types of services that dental health therapists are licensed to provide, which are basic level to urgent needs, and removal of teeth that are causing patients pain or abscesses. Adding dental therapists to Colorado offices has been in discussion for about a decade, said Neferatos, who hopes to add such a provider to her office. Overall, there's been a decline in the number of dental hygienists working in the U.S., with a drop-off occurring during the pandemic, she said. They're a lot scarcer, she said, so dental health therapists may be able to meet those needs because of the lack of hygienists. Information about how to become a licensed dental therapist in Colorado, along with a checklist, is available on the Colorado Dental Board's website at dpo.colorado.gov slash dental slash applications docs. How Some Coloradans Could Shave Up to $19,000 Off a New Electric Vehicle Later This Year A state credit for income-qualified new and used EV buyers to trade in older gas cars will add up to $6,000 to existing lucrative discounts to push electrification. By Michael Booth State officials are putting finishing touches on an electric vehicle rebate for income-qualified buyers willing to trade in an older gas-fueled vehicle, adding up to $6,000 in price cuts on a new vehicle to a menu of credits that can already include $5,500 from utilities or up to $7,500 from federal sources. The program is expected to launch in mid-July, with $2 million in state money over the following 12 months. Colorado is paying for the instant rebates and other EV infrastructure, such as public chargers, with a $0.6.9 cent portion of the $0.27 cent delivery fee passed as part of the sweeping 2021 Transportation Policy and Funding Bill. Shoppers who are looking for used EVs and have an old car to trade in could get $4,000 from the new state rebate program, taken off the sale price at the cash register, 
instead of rebated the next time they file taxes. Electrification advocates say upfront price cuts in the form of instant tax credits are the most attractive for shoppers considering EVs. The dealer then claims the payment from the state. State officials also announced a package of forthcoming energy and climate bills for the current legislative session that could add even more to those incentives. Colorado currently offers a $2,000 state tax credit for the new EVs, no trade-in required, and elements of the bill package could increase the state's credit to $5,000. Not all the credits and rebates will be stackable, though state officials are at pains to define how they can combine. Not all those decisions have been made. Further confusing the matter is that the existing, about-to-be-expanded state credit for new cars without a trade-in will be refundable, meaning qualified buyers could wipe out all of their state tax obligation and get a cash refund back. Late Thursday, the Colorado Energy Office said the proposed $5,000 state credit could be expanded by up to another $2,500 if the legislative package passes for vehicles priced under $30,000. That extra amount is intended to fill gaps for vehicles that don't qualify yet for the full $7,500 federal credit, because not enough of their parts are made in the U.S., a CEO spokesperson said. The state's gap filler will boost low-income buyers while the automakers revamp their assembly systems. An income-qualified customer making the trade-in could theoretically combine the $6,000 state trade-in rebate for a new car, a $5,000 state tax credit, and a $7,500 federal tax credit expanded this year, for a total of nearly $19,000 off a new EV. Excel Energy and Black Hills offer a $5,500 rebate for income-qualified buyers of new EVs, which are stackable with the trade-in rebate, but not stackable with the state EV tax credit. Customers may have to choose. Some customers will be in the sweet spot of combining a number of the rebates and credits for a qualifying car, said Travis Madsen, Transportation Program Director for the Southwest Energy Efficiency Project. So the total stackable amount could be in the $20,000-plus range for a purchase that met all eligibility criteria, he said. The federal tax credit is non-refundable, meaning it can only offset federal taxes the earner would otherwise pay. Those who are income-qualified for the new state trade-in credit might not pay enough in federal taxes to benefit from the full $7,500 federal credit. The car being traded in must be a 2011 model or older, or have failed Colorado emissions tests. The trade-in program, dubbed Vehicle Exchange Colorado, takes on multiple goals of state officials and environmental justice advocates. Taking older, higher-polluting gas vehicles off the road can be one of the quickest ways to reduce ozone-causing emissions from the transportation economy. 
and significant additional credits for new and used EVs can put electrification in reach for far more households as Colorado agencies work to transform the collective vehicle fleet to run on cleaner electricity. The state's greenhouse gas reduction plan and efforts to come under EPA ozone limits depend on getting 940,000 EVs on Colorado roads by 2030. I like the concept, said Madsen. Reaching our climate goals will require a broad, society-wide shift in our vehicle fleet to zero-emission technology and fuel. The upfront purchase cost of a vehicle is one of the largest obstacles we face, he said. The state's program should help push EVs out to people at different income levels, Madsen said. The Colorado Energy Office said the exact amounts of the trade-in credits have not been set, but community presentations mentioned the $6,000 toward a new EV and $4,000 toward a used EV. More details should be set by April, when the Community Access Enterprise Board related to the Colorado Energy Office will see a final plan. Fully electric and plug-in hybrid vehicles would qualify under current plans. The income criteria involve the household being below 80% of the area median income, or be participating in another income-qualified program such as Medicaid. As an area median example, in Denver, a household would qualify for the trade-in EV credit if a single person was making less than $62,600 or a family of four made less than $89,400. The price of the used EV must be more than the rebate amount, and a new EV cannot be priced higher than $50,000. There are a limited number of lower-priced EVs currently on the market, but the Chevy Bolt sells for about $26,000 to $28,000 before tax credits. Dozens of new EV models from all the major car manufacturers are expected to hit the market in the next year or two. Some have lowered prices as batteries get cheaper or companies want to get under the price caps to qualify for tax credits. Expansion of tax credits and rebates at multiple levels makes the annual cost calculation better than ever, Madsen said, noting that transportation costs can eat up to 20% of a lower-income family's budget. Inflation and the temporary shutdown of the state's only gas refinery, Suncor Energy, pushed gas prices up to $4 a gallon, and means the typical Denver Metro household is spending about $3,000 a year on gas, Madsen said. Given current off-peak electricity rates at 16,580 miles driven a year, an EV like the Bolt would save a family $2,400 on fuel, Madsen calculated. Plus, there are no expensive oil changes and little other maintenance besides tires. 
So if a low or moderate income person can get their hands on one, they offer meaningful savings that can help improve their financial position," Madsen said. Opinion: A tougher drug-related homicide law won't reduce overdose deaths. The more effective, less expensive way to save lives. Is to provide treatment to drug users. By Joshua Barakas, M.D. In response to the overdose crisis that has consumed Colorado, largely attributable to illicitly manufactured fentanyl, some lawmakers are turning toward supply-side interventions that they believe will curb overdose deaths. One such piece of legislation is Senate Bill 23-109, concerning a criminal penalty for the supplier when a person dies as a result of the use of a controlled substance. This type of bill is colloquially known as a drug-induced homicide law. For several reasons, ranging from practical to fiscal, drug-induced homicide laws like SB 23-109. Are not the right approach to addressing the overdose crisis here in Colorado. In general, drug-induced homicide laws criminalize the delivery of illicit drugs that results in a fatal overdose. According to the Prescription Drug Abuse Policy System, 25 states had some sort of drug-induced homicide law on the books as of 2018. In many cases, such as Rhode Island. The drug-induced homicide law provides up to life imprisonment for anyone who sells, delivers, or distributes a drug that leads to a fatal overdose. Colorado is one of the states with a drug-induced homicide law. It applies, however, only to unlawful distribution, dispensation, or sale of a controlled substance that results in death to a person under 18 years of age. The bill now under consideration would eliminate the age provision. Why then are drug-induced homicide laws not right for Colorado? First, they don't work. As lawmakers attempt to curb the overdose crisis, many are crafting policy around evidence-based approaches like expansion of medications for opioid use disorder, Good Samaritan laws. And increased access to harm reduction, all of which reduce overdose deaths. There is, however, no evidence that drug-induced homicide laws decrease overdose. In fact, one study among people who were incarcerated with opioid use disorder found that it was neither an effective response to altering the drug supply, nor would it alter their own use of drugs. Several other studies have demonstrated how punitive measures. Such as this one, add to health problems beyond overdose, including increases in HIV, hepatitis C, and severe skin infections. Second, they might actually have the opposite intended effect. Again, the intent of this law is a good one: to deter sellers, limit the amount of fentanyl on the street, and reduce overdose. The truth is, however, that drug-induced homicide laws, especially as this one is written, 
reduce the likelihood that someone might call 911 in the event of an overdose due to fear of arrest. If a bystander is not equipped with naloxone and is too afraid to call 911 because they mix the drugs that led to the overdose, then the potentially non-fatal overdose turns into a fatal one. Additionally, these laws end up criminalizing low-level sellers at the bottom of the distribution network, not kingpins and drug lords. It won't help disrupt the network as we often hear. Supply-side interventions rarely do. It will just further criminalize people with substance use disorders. Which gets us to the third point. This law could cost the state billions of dollars. Because one goal of this drug-induced homicide law is to disrupt the drug supply, the law will naturally lead to increases in incarceration. The Colorado Department of Corrections budget is already exceeding $1 billion annually, and this law will surely require additional taxpayer dollars. Let's assume that half of the 1,492 overdose deaths in Colorado in 2020 was the result of someone sharing drugs or drug paraphernalia. Not that unreasonable of an assumption. Then let's assume that each person who shares drugs is charged and imprisoned for an average of 50 years, the equivalent of a life sentence for a 25-year-old, at a 2015 cost of $39,303 per year. Based on these assumptions, this law will end up costing Colorado taxpayers at least $1.45 billion in today's dollars over the next 50 years. Or in political terms, it will cost Coloradans $117 million during Governor Jared Polis's second term. Even if only 15 people are charged and incarcerated over four years, it will cost us $2.4 million additionally. Personally, I can think of better ways to spend those dollars than on incarcerating people who use drugs. For example, $2.3 million would fund methadone treatment for 500 Coloradans for one year, and $117 million would fund methadone treatment for 5,000 Coloradans for five years. I assume Governor Polis can think of better ways to spend that money too. As a provider on the front lines of the overdose epidemic, I am grateful to the legislators who are working hard to help us by crafting policies to curb these deaths. We need evidence-based solutions now more than ever if we are to make headway in this crisis. We need policymakers focused on solutions that are proven to work and on ones that don't break the bank. Drug-induced homicide laws are not an evidence-based tool, nor a fiscally responsible one, that Coloradans need in our toolbox. Joshua Barocas, MD, of Denver, is an associate professor of medicine at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. 
He is an addiction researcher and infectious diseases physician who treats people with substance use disorders. The Sun Special Events Congress 2023, March 23rd, from 6 to 7 p.m. Colorado's newest U.S. representatives, Yadira Caraveo and Brittany Peterson, talk about their journey thus far. Politics editor and reporter Jesse Paul and data analyst Sandra Fish will moderate. RSVP to attend live or to receive a link to watch later at coloradosun.com slash events. Surviving the Medicaid Cliff, April 4th, 6 to 7 p.m. Colorado Sun Health reporter John Ingold will talk with experts about how more than 300,000 Coloradans could lose Medicaid coverage as pandemic-era federal rules come to an end this spring. Learn about what information you'll need to know, how to find new insurance, and much more. Speakers include Kim Bimisteffer, Executive Director, Colorado Department of Healthcare Policy and Financing, Megan Fearing, President, Colorado State Association of Health Underwriters, Michael Conway, Colorado Insurance Commissioner. This event is sponsored by Anthem Blue Cross and Blue Shield in Colorado. RSVP to attend live or to receive a link to watch later at coloradosun.com slash events. Thank you for joining us for the Colorado Sun. My name is Emily. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303 786-7777.